Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'm happy to say that the following interview is brought to you with permission by the excellent podcast, Who Makes Sense? A History of Capitalism. I hope that you enjoy this episode, and I hope that you visit Who Makes Sense? As serious discussions have mounted about raising the minimum wage to $15, My Facebook feed has shown me more than one friend who thinks that service sector workers earning a living wage are an insult when armed services members do not. This is a common refrain in politics, especially on the right. There's a budgetary zero-sum game between members of the military and civilians, and since soldiers are not earning a living wage, no one should. Our guest today takes us through the four-decade history of this kind of zero-sum politics. Jennifer Middlestadt writes about the expansion and contraction of benefits to military service members since the start of the all-volunteer forces in the 1970s. She explains why military benefits expanded at the exact historical moment that civilian benefits eroded and why the contraction of benefits now has implications for all of us. Before we chat with her, We wanted to remind you that the History of Capitalism Summer Camp at Cornell University is accepting applications through January 15th. If you're a scholar who could use some quantitative skills to further your research in the history of capitalism, you should apply. This podcast got its start at the inaugural HOC camp in 2013. Learn more at hoc.ilr.cornell.edu slash summer hyphen camp. Again, that's hoc.ilr.cornell.edu slash summer hyphen camp. And we'll post a link on our website. You are listening to Who Makes Sense? A History of Capitalism podcast. Betsy Beasley. And I'm David Stein. Who Makes Sense is a monthly podcast devoted to bringing you engaging stories that explain how capitalism has changed over time. We interview historians and social and cultural critics about capitalism's past, highlighting the political and the economic changes that have created the present. Today, we speak with Jennifer Middlestadt. I'm Jennifer Middlestadt, and I teach at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. The book is called The Rise of the Military Welfare State, and it's a study of the benefits and social services of the all-volunteer army in the context of social welfare and political economy in the late 20th century. The book traces the story of the army's benefits and social services from just before the beginning of the all-volunteer force up through the year 2000 or so, with an epilogue that takes it up through the present. 
what the book does is sort of lay out the reasons behind an enormous transformation of the military from the draft era into the volunteer force. And that enormous transformation is the construction of a very significant social welfare apparatus that had not been necessary during the period of the draft, but was necessary with the switch to the volunteer force and the need to recruit and retain personnel. When looking at the possibilities for how the military might recruit and retain personnel, there were those who believed that it should uh, do so on the basis of a free market analysis, that cash should lure people into the military, cash should retain people within the military. But the military actually pushed back and decided that uh, a kind of paternalistic social welfare institution, one more generous than most people who would join the military could find in civilian society, would be a better choice. It would cement their loyalty to the institution. It would sort of model the kind of hierarchy and paternalism of the military as an institution. And so they went this route. And so what the book does is sort of trace what happens uh, as this military welfare state develops. It traces who's involved in creating the programs and what happens to those programs over time. And what I found was that there were a wide variety of people involved who I hadn't expected to be involved. And then also there was an arc to the story that I that also surprised me, uh, one that featured not only um, a rise of this military welfare state, but also a decline. As you note in your book, the military provided an elaborate social and economic safety net including medical and dental programs, housing assistance, tax advantages, child care, and education and training, amongst other benefits. What made you want to focus on the military's social and economic supports? I did not find this project. It really did find me. And I experienced this moment on the streets of Brooklyn when I overheard a recruiter trying to recruit someone as he was walking down the street, talking on his cell phone. I experienced this as sort of a project falling out of the sky onto my head. Uh, the truth of the matter is I had really never given the military much serious consideration as a topic that would be important for me as a scholar of politics and social policy. When I ran into a bank because it was before the day uh, days of smartphones, and I copied down onto the back of a deposit slip, the military is a welfare state. <laughs> and that was it. I pretty much knew from that moment that my imagination had been captured in, in the kind of way that you know once you started doing historical research is the way that you need it to be captured in order to pursue a project for a long period of time. So that was really the genesis for the book. Your book focuses on the years since the 1970s, when the military became exclusively a volunteer force with the end of the draft. How and why did the military come to develop a welfare state during this period? The fact that throughout American history, the military has been 
related to social welfare in some form or another isn't really a revelation. But the nature of that relationship, I think, was what was revelatory to me and how it changes from a draft to a volunteer force. So in the draft era, what you have is a a relationship between the military and civilian social welfare in which military programs are deeply connected to a citizenry that is far more implicated in the military because of conscription. So that is hundreds of thousands to millions of American men are drafted into the military and as as citizen soldiers. And as a reward for that service, tens of millions of personnel are given these programs. And these programs are more deeply interconnected then with civilian life because, of course, the families of civilians are implicated in those programs and institutions like universities and colleges are or banks are all implicated in these veterans programs and they become rather than just sort of narrowly defined entitlements for a narrowly defined group of people they become more like models or just enormous programs that model the relationship between citizens and the state and entitlement. But when you switch to a volunteer force and when you sever connections between large swaths of citizens and the military, what you're really looking at is a small, small segment of Americans who will serve and the welfare state isn't so much to reward them after the fact and send them back into civilian life, but rather it's to create an incentive for a, a, a career kind of permanent military force. And that means making distinctions. That means carving the military away from civilians. And that means a really different relationship then between social welfare in the military and social welfare in civilian society. And that for me was one of the real revelations of the book was the reckoning with what it means that the United States has a volunteer force compared to what it had meant to have conscription. And honestly, it's one of the many things I think that helped clarify for me the potential dangers of a volunteer force. There are many potential dangers of a volunteer force. We might talk about those dangers being in foreign policy and the choices that uh, American politicians can make about how to conduct foreign policy using a volunteer force. But there there are also these consequences that I hadn't dreamt of before that have to do with the really negative effects for civilians of having a volunteer force and for civilians' own social welfare in the long run. So really, the rise of the military social welfare state depended on a growing division between military and civilian life. The Army worked quite hard to carve out a space for its growing welfare state politically, and it did so largely by cleaving itself off from other forms of civilian social welfare and also from civilian employment. And the army leaders and also 
soldiers spent much of the 70s sort of in a, a kind of defensive construction mode, um, crafting a kind of justification for the enormous growth of social welfare programs for soldiers and their families, and also demarcating and differentiating those programs at that very moment from other civilian programs and from civilian employment. And this cleaving process, I think, was also aided in the 1980s during the Reagan administration with the enormous defense budget. These efforts and these connections really sort of allowed the military welfare state to blossom, even as the civilian welfare state was declining in those same years. And in fact, in the Reagan administration, the growth of the military welfare state actually served as a kind of cudgel for attacking the civilian welfare state, uh, especially the civilian programs that aid students attending colleges and universities. And so I trace out the ways in which the military welfare state is able to rise in perhaps an unexpected fashion concerning the overall fate of welfare in the United States. Oddly, part of this is about military service being treated more like a long-term job through which one should earn benefits rather than like a special service needed in a particular wartime moment. Did soldiers seem to think of the military service as a job? Uh, So this was one of the many surprises in conducting this research was the effort of the American Federation of Government Employees to unionize the new all-volunteer force in the middle of the 1970s. I did not know anything about this before I began the project. The effort to unionize the Army and the other services in the 1970s really came out of the context of the government crisis after the slowdown in the economy in 1973 and the recession. And so that context created government cutbacks. And one of the places that the government was looking to cut its costs was in cutting both the numbers of government employees and also freezing wages and reducing benefits. And so the American Federation of Government Employees, which was the largest the federal government unions, a kind of public union movement, was thinking about ways that it could strengthen its hand in lobbying Congress and in protecting its members. And at the same time, the the new soldiers of the volunteer force were looking at ways that they could protect their own benefits because there were some people in Congress who were raising questions, even as the military was switching to a volunteer force about whether or not the benefits that were beginning to be offered were in fact too generous. And so the military personnel ended up having a kind of shared need uh, or shared set of circumstances with federal government employees at this moment in the mid-1970s. And actually some service personnel had begun to write to the American Federation of Government Employees to say, hey, our benefits look like they might be threatened in Congress. Is there anything that you can do to help? And more importantly, the American Federation of Government Employees looked 
at the new volunteer force and said, I bet we could really get Congress's attention if we said that we were going to unionize the military. So out of these shared circumstances comes this sort of unlikely effort to see whether or not they can unionize the volunteer force. So what happens is, is that AFKI announces in late 1975 that it's going to consider unionizing the military. They vote to approve doing so in 1976. And then they sort of start to collect information about what that would mean to do it at the very same time that large swaths of the military, Congress, and the American public have a kind of collective conniption fit about what it would mean to have a unionized military. So did they win? Unionization effort doesn't go anywhere. And it becomes clear very early on that it's not going to go anywhere because dozens of bills are sponsored both in the Senate and in the House to ban military unionization. And all of the leaders of the services come out against it. The president comes out against it. It's clear that it's really not going to go anywhere. But what was interesting to me was that the debate over whether or not the military would be unionized provided an opportunity for the new volunteer force to define what it was that it did and why what it did was different from being a job that could be unionized. And then to take that differentiation and use that differentiation as a justification for expanding its benefits and social services for active duty personnel and for their families. So in other words, the union story became interesting for me, not so much because it was a true viable moment when the military might have been unionized, but rather because it became a very important moment for the military to define what its military welfare state was and why it was special compared to civilian benefits and civilian work. So you mentioned that the expansion of the military welfare state continued even as the civilian welfare state was contracting. Tell us more about that. I came to this project as a historian who'd already written one monograph on civilian social welfare, um, on the program for really some of the poorest Americans, the Aid to Families with Dependent Children program. And I'd also co-authored and co-edited another book on that topic. And so I knew the story well about the decline of the welfare state in the late 20th century United States. So when I found this one part of social welfare in the United States that was growing, it was at first a, a bit of a paradox that for me required, you know, further study and exploration. Why was it that this was able to grow when the civilian welfare state was declining? There has been a lot of recent scholarship on what an American welfare state looks like. And that scholarship has pointed out that an American welfare state, unlike, say, our image of a kind of comprehensive, universal, European social welfare state is much more piecemeal. It's, you can find welfare provision in the public realm, but even there it tends to be split and divided 
in serving various groups. So, for example, it's serving workers in one way. It might be serving parents of children in another way. It might be serving um, people who are disabled or blind in another way. Then there might be hidden aspects of the public welfare state. So some of them might be in the tax system, and some of them might be in obvious income transfers or in vouchers for food or something like that. And then there's a whole private welfare state, which is often encouraged by the federal government through tax subsidies to corporations. So you might find that public-private employment insurance that has to do with health insurance, for example, we would consider that as part of the welfare states. So when I realized that there was a military welfare state, um, I could sort of slot it into this variegated hodgepodge of American social welfare. But what was especially interesting was that it was growing at a moment when not only the civilian public welfare state was declining, but also private social welfare through employment benefits was also declining. So it was being diminished. It was being outsourced. The more that unions declined in the private sector, the more those benefits declined at the same time. So it really did seem to be this sort of outlier. And uh, my project was in part to figure out why the heck this was happening. So it happened because the military made this really important effort to cleave itself from civilian social welfare. And one of the most interesting examples of this was in the 1980s under the Reagan administration. And I think that this may be the one time that we might think about the growth of the military welfare state coming at the direct expense of the civilian welfare state. So Reagan is coming to identify the military really as one of the most important, if not the most important institutions in American public life. And one of the ways that he can show that is by strengthening the programs that support soldiers and their families. At the same time, Reagan is looking to attack the civilian welfare state. And this has long been a part of his politics, really since his first run for governor in California in the 1960s. And as he comes to power, he and his aides are looking for ways that they might cut the civilian welfare state at the same time that they're looking for ways that they might augment the military. There's a press to renew the GI Bill, and that becomes the vehicle by which Reagan can both grow the military welfare state and also cut the civilian welfare state. So the GI Bill had, of course, been created after World War II, and then there had been another GI Bill for Vietnam veterans. But Congress ends the GI Bill after the end of the Vietnam War, reasoning that with a volunteer force, there's no need to reward citizen soldiers for having been drafted and serving in a military. So they suspend it. So with the switch to the volunteer force, the GI Bill is proposed um, once again, but not so much to reward people for having served, but to lure them to come into the military in the first place. If you come into the military, 
eventually, when you decide to leave, you'll have this special educational reward. And it's, it's this reward that Reagan fastens on as an important symbol of a militarized politics, that those who serve, that those who make a special sacrifice should have this reward. And at the same time, those who are not deserving, who haven't sacrificed anything, should not have any special assistance from the federal government. And this means that civilians who are using Pell Grants, for example, or who are using the federal student loan program should not get those programs because those programs are being given to them with no sacrifice on their part. And so actually the Reagan administration proposes in its private conversations that they will use money from cutting the civilian higher education grants and loans to fund a GI Bill. The Army itself proposes this as well, and supporters in Congress propose this. So part of the way that the civilian welfare state declines and the military welfare state grows in this one particular case is through a direct one-to-one equation and cut. It's a zero-sum game in this particular case. Even during the Vietnam War, when unemployment was relatively low, scholars like Kimberly Phillips have argued that black soldiers especially volunteered disproportionately for the military due to inadequate job opportunities. To what extent does an all-volunteer force require a certain level of unemployment and economic precarity in order to function smoothly? So when I started this project, you know, sort of people would say to me that the volunteer force depends on, like, a degradation of the civilian welfare state structurally in order to be able to lure people in. Uh, It depends on, you know, a certain level of unemployment. It depends, you know, on a certain level of poverty, in in other words. And indeed, the all-volunteer force is far more of a working-class military than we've ever had in the 20th century. So the all-volunteer force is way more working-class than even the Vietnam draft was, even at its most unequal Um, it's way, way, way more working class. And so there's a way in which just sort of structurally that does seem true. And of course, military manpower economists will say when unemployment is high, you know, it's easiest for us to recruit. And the military in the 1970s was quite aware of the fact that the benefits that it would now be offering as it expanded them to all ranks, including lower-level enlisted personnel, and to their families would be more generous than much of the civilian welfare state. They were aware of that. I sort of, what I think overall is that, like, the push toward um, an overall neoliberal society isn't the result of the volunteer army, but rather the volunteer army is in part the result of that overall push. They're all sort of intertwined and and interrelated. Um, And so, yes, like a relationship is there, but I think it's probably really complex. So part of your story is about the expansion of the military welfare state in the 1970s and 1980s. But you also discuss the contraction of these benefits in the 1990s and into the present. How did this come to be? From the beginning, 
it turns out there were people who were opposed to the growth of a military welfare state. There were people who were dubious about its role within the military. And the book also traces those factors and traces them ultimately to a decline at the end of the 20th century. So the groups that were opposed to the military welfare state came both from within the military and outside the military. So those within the military who were concerned about it, I think generally speaking, were those who equated the demographics that came into the all-volunteer force with certain um, new programs that the military was creating and thought of those as a kind of import of the kind of lowest levels of civilian welfare programs and even welfare recipients into the Army. And so in the 1970s, a group of alarmed active duty officers, but also those in the retired community and some in Congress, began to interpret the changes of the volunteer force with more women, with greater numbers of African Americans, and with a larger number of low-income and less educated people, with the new programs that were being created and talked about how they were degrading military readiness. And in fact, spoke in a language, I think, that was very inflected by fears of feminization of the military. And this kind of worry about the military welfare state, although it sort of died down in the 1980s, flared up again in the 1990s and played an important role in directing army leadership more toward a very skeptical stance toward its own welfare programs and towards its personnel. And this skeptical stance, I think, was reinforced by Army leadership's awareness of the changing civilian politics of welfare, which at that time featured Clinton's The End of Welfare as We Know It and the 1996 welfare reform, both of which really cast doubt on any programs that seemed to encourage quote-unquote dependency. Um, And the military embraced this and looked at its own programs with skepticism and actually changed the motto that it had embraced back when it began its military welfare state. And that motto was, the Army takes care of its own, originally. And in the 1990s, because of this kind of long-term skepticism revived then in the Clinton era, they changed it to a rather um, awkward, the Army takes care of its own so that they can learn to take care of themselves. And so there was sort of a philosophical and ideological pullback as a result of this long-term internal skepticism about the wisdom of having a welfare state within the military. But the other group that opposed the military welfare state was actually a group outside the military. And this was surprising to me. This group consisted of free market economists, uh, corporate leaders, and sympathetic elected officials who thought of themselves, I think, as uh, representatives of free enterprise. And they had been skeptical from the very founding of the volunteer force when Milton Friedman, who led the President's Commission on the Volunteer Force, 
proposed that the military outsource and privatize most of its non-essential activities. Um, and this would include everything from logistics to the military welfare state. And as I said, the military was able to beat back this suggestion for the 1970s and actually all of the 1980s as well. But by the 1990s, with the end of the Cold War, with the shrinking of the defense budget, and with the growth in political power of both a kind of free market perspective, ideologically speaking, but also a, a material power among corporate interests in Washington, they were finally able to affect their earlier goals. And that is they were able to begin to outsource, that meaning to contract out and to privatize almost, well, if not all, large, enormous, significant swaths of the military welfare state and other aspects of um, military services, for that matter, as well. And you have a really poignant moment in the book that illustrates these debates. And this was an early interchange that went on between Milton Friedman, the free market economist, well known to many Americans for his books and also his show on his series on public television, and also the fact that he's a, a Nobel Prize winner in economics. It was an interchange between him and William Westmoreland, who, of course, was the commander of U.S. forces in Vietnam, but then became the chief of staff of the Army in the period of the transition to the volunteer force. And the exchange had to do with their competing visions of what the volunteer force was going to look like. And Milton Friedman, who at that time was leading this commission on the volunteer force, and had collected to help him lead it and run it a cadre of like-minded economists from the University of Chicago, from the University of Virginia, um, from Syracuse, from the Hoover Institution. They had sort of already set out an agenda that the volunteer force would become this model of a free market institution. As I've referred to earlier, one that would perform its military function through recruiting people using cash incentives, but also would mostly only perform truly military functions and would instead outsource and privatize the kind of non, in the words of the military, the non-tip of the spear functions that it had. And would also divest itself of much of its property infrastructure that wasn't necessary. And so they had developed this whole plan through their research on the President's Commission on the Volunteer Force. But then, of course, they had to actually talk to people in the military and, in effect, negotiate out in real life what would happen. And here is really where William... Westmoreland and the Army, which was conducting its own study of what it knew now was going to be a full transition to a volunteer force, where the, these two visions met one another. And in the Army's mind, of course, I think the ideal development would have been that there was no volunteer force 
although the army was quick to come on board because of the political realities that it faced in what was then the Nixon administration and the unpopularity of both the Vietnam War and the draft, it was very reluctant to do so. And it relied on the draft more than any other service. Fully 50% of the people who were in the Army in 1968-1969 were there because of the draft. And it really looked dismal, um, the prospect of recruiting through voluntary methods uh, a fully manned army. So they're developing their own vision and they're trying to imagine how they're going to have this volunteer army. And what they see is a necessity to maintain a kind of hierarchical, paternal model in which, yes, the army is a volunteer force that recruits and retains people through incentives, but those incentives will largely derive from the kind of institution that the army is, which is what sociologists would call a total institution, an institution that sort of fully envelops the soldier into the institutional life. And it means creating relationships with soldiers, and it means providing concrete, visible benefits through these relationships. And so Westmoreland has this vision of a kind of fully articulated paternal model that envelops the soldier within it. And so he and Milton Friedman have this showdown about which way the army is going to go. And Westmoreland is just, I think he's repulsed by the image of a cash-incentive, market-based army. And he says to Milton Friedman, what you want me to do is turn the army into an army of mercenaries. And Milton Friedman shoots back, well, with the draft, you have an army of slaves. And it, for me, it was this moment where I saw the stakes, the way both the military on the inside and the free markets advocates on the outside really saw the military as such an important institution that they could bring this debate down to these sort of polar opposites. You've talked a lot here about the changes at the top that have expanded and contracted the military welfare state at different moments. But you also make an argument about these changes coming from the bottom up. What did that look like? Military spouses in the late 1970s who were far larger in number than they had ever been in the history of the military because of the volunteer force, because of the need to allow married men into the military or to allow men who were in the military to get married. They are just very numerous. Um, They're also coming in at a pretty different moment in the history of women in the United States. They're coming in at a moment that is following on an upsurge of feminism. They're coming in at a moment when Women are working outside of the home, particularly married women and mothers are working outside of the home in unprecedented numbers. 
And so they come into the the military welfare state with some expectations that I think probably surprised military leadership and army leadership in particular. And so what they do is create a real army wives movement in the late 70s and the early 1980s that's a social movement. And it encompasses women from posts all around the world. It's led mostly by officers' wives, but it has all ranks of women in it. And they actually create on their own these 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 like international conferences, these symposia that they start to hold, where they start to think about what's difficult about being an army wife and how they would like the army to change for the better in order to serve them. And it's so influential that it actually brings army leadership um, under their influence. I guess that's the best way to put it. They're able to convince army leadership that it is in their best interest to serve military wives. And that means creating a whole slew of programs that had not existed before. So the 1980s is really the period of greatest growth in military social welfare programs. And it's a direct result of the awareness generated by military wives of the needs of military wives and military families. So in the 1980s, you have a huge push in family housing. You have a huge, uh, the creation of military child care programs. You have the creation of a whole family support system that runs everywhere from like counseling programs for spouses for families and children to like after school programs and other uh, child programs. They have programs to help army wives uh, find and retain employment. So it's a huge component of the military welfare state and, and wives are directly responsible for this. But the second part of the story of the relationship between wives and the military welfare state is um, much more ambiguous. And I think that this arises from a larger fear of feminization of the military that is resulting both from the changing demographics of the military, so more women soldiers, but also more wives who are accompanying male soldiers into the military, and an equation of that changing demographic with the military welfare state. In other words, the reason why we have to have all these programs is to serve all these women, whether they be female soldiers or whether they be now the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of military wives, soldiers' wives that we have in the military. And, and this kind of resistance to and fear of feminizing the military through providing things like child care it creates this critique of the military turning into a quote-unquote babysitter or a, that commanders are term, turning into, and here I'm quoting again from critics, um, social workers. And that begins in the 1970s as wives and women become more important in the all-volunteer force, but it continues all the way through the 1990s and I think accounts for a large degree of the Army's shifting position toward its own military welfare state 
to a more defensive and reluctant um, discussion of it. So I think military wives play a really important role in both the rise of the military welfare state, but then its decline as well. Given that the military is an all-volunteer force, for many Americans, it can be a distant institution. How does the history you're telling matter for those of us with little relationship to the military? I think there are numerous answers to that question. But the one that really has to do with civilian social welfare is that I think that a military welfare state has worked in two ways negatively. One, to undermine support for civilian social welfare. And two, to serve as a, it's now serving in recent years as a kind of laboratory for changes to social welfare that will be bad for civilians also in the long run. So let me let me try to break those two out. So so the first way that I think that it's been bad for civilian social welfare is that I think that in creating a category of sort of super citizenship, um, and that is, I think, what militarization in general in the volunteer era, but also the military welfare state have done, which is they have in cleaving themselves off from civilian social welfare and from concepts of civilian employment, they have justified themselves as especially deserving of a special kind of entitlements. That necessarily, although maybe not intentionally, creates a a kind of evaluation process in which if one group military personnel are special and deserving, another group is by necessity sort of less deserving and less special. And I don't think that that has played out well for civilians in the long run and has joined with other ways of degrading civilian social welfare, notions of dependency, um, the racialization um, and gendering of social welfare to, to kind of combine to degrade civilian social welfare. So I think the military social welfare is, has not played out well for most civilians in, in that way. But actually a, a more worrisome and urgent development, I think, is that in cleaving itself off from civilians, sort of paradoxically, the military has now isolated itself and finds itself unable to find allies in resisting what I think are negative changes in military benefits that are coming down the pike right now. But one of the interesting experiences I've had in doing this project is once I put that sort of danger together in my head, was trying to think about what it would mean today, like right now, what would it mean for military personnel to sort of think more widely about how they should reach out to civilians as allies? Mm -hmm. Because eventually they might be implicated in the change in military benefits, right? Because if the military can argue to civilians, if military personnel can argue to civilians, look, they're coming to privatize and marketize 
our benefits, watch out. This might come for you too. They might have more allies on board from the, from the civilian sector in resisting this. But the truth is, because the military has cleaved itself for so many years from civilians, and because we have a volunteer force, civilians really don't pay any attention to changes in military benefits. Mm-hmm. And they have been led to believe by the military and others that those benefits have nothing to do with them, that they're a special category. And so now the military actually finds itself isolated from civilians, and they wonder why civilians don't pay attention to negative changes in their benefits. If you liked our show, make sure to check us out at whomakesensepodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash whomakesense, and follow us on Twitter at whomakesense. And let us know if there are topics that you want to know more about. You can learn more about Jennifer's work at our website, whomakesensepodcast.com. Who Makes Sense is supported by the Yale Public Humanities Program and the University of Southern California's Department of American Studies and Ethnicity. Join us next month for more Histories of Capitalism. Capitalism.